Now entering Nerdist.com. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by Audible, where you can download the audiobook of your choice for free from audiblepodcast.com slash missionlog. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 20, Court Martial. Welcome again, friends, to Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, the show where we try to figure out what makes Star Trek tick, one episode at a time. I'm John Champion. And I'm Ken Ray. If you thought Star Trek was all phasers and green girls, we're about two-thirds through season one and we're already back in court. We were there once with the menagerie where we put Spock on trial, but why stop there when we can go full-on court-martial with James T. Kirk? I still think we're about two episodes away from a whole Law & Order spinoff in the Federation. You know, and I tried to think of something, you know, like in the criminal justice system, the people will be represented by a big, hairy, green thing. (laughs) Right, yeah. And something that used to suck salt from people, but now, uh, you know, defends them. I don't know. I couldn't couldn't come up with anything, but I I like the Law & Order reference. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting about these shows. The the cool thing about science fiction uh, of any stripe is that you can do any kind of story in science fiction. You can do a court show. You can do a war show. You can do really anything you want. And Star Trek is a malleable enough format to be able to fit something like this in it. Um, Now, I don't want to spoil it here too much, but I think we've already seen the best of that in uh, The Menagerie. <laughs> so okay, at now least do you so think far. do you think we've seen the best of that in the menagerie because you think it was well done in the menagerie or because you're so hung up on the cage? All of the above. All right, guilty. All right. <laughs> guilty. Yep. And now I've got a uh, Superman two stuck in my head. Well, that's... Superman one and Superman two, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's that's like ninety percent of my time anyway. <laughs> Hey, guys, uh, before we get into the show here, remember that you can always contact us. We love, love, love hearing from you. And you can reach out to us on Facebook at Mission Log Pod and also on Twitter at Mission Log Pod. You can even talk to us on Skype at Mission Log Pod or you can pick up the phone if you can find one and call us at 323-522-5641. We may very well use a clip of you on our show. And there is one more thing before we head to trial. When you um, are all caught up with all the mission logs, what do you do then? Well, if you're not watching more Star Trek, you can download a great audiobook and get deeper into the ideas discussed here. And the place to start is audiblepodcast.com slash mission log. If it's the singularity or warp drive, Audible has a book for you. Now, if you've heard Mission Log Supplemental Number 2, then you've heard some of Robert J. Sawyer's thoughts on Star Trek in particular and on science fiction in general. Well, now how about hearing some of his science fiction? I'm a huge fan of his book, Calculating God. I'm currently working through the WWW trilogy. They're available on Audible, as well as um, Flash Forward, the book on which the uh, TV show was based, and then just a whole bunch of other Robert J. Sawyer titles waiting there for you. Have you already read them all? Read them again. No, no. But if you're looking for something different, cool. Audible has over a thousand science and technology and over 1,100 science fiction and fantasy titles with more being added all the time. 
Audible has over 100,000 titles to choose from. And just like Mission Log, they'll play wherever you are. On your iPhone, your iPod, your smartphone. You know, if you don't have an iPhone, I don't get it, but okay. Your tablet, if you don't have an (laughs) iPad, I don't get it, but okay. If it'll play an MP3, it'll almost definitely play the audiobook of your choice. Get started with your free audiobook today at audiblepodcast.com slash mission log. That's audiblepodcast.com slash mission log. You know, um, for people listening, we haven't missed a beat. For people listening, it's, you know, last week there was a show. Next week there will be a show. That's the way these things go. But we um, have actually been away for a couple of weeks uh, from doing this show. Mm-hmm which means I am two weeks deprived of Star Trek trivia. <gasps> no. I know. I know. I'm, no. I'm, count, I'm counting on you, my friend. Lay it All on, right. lay, I, I, lay I it on to, me. Hit me with it. I should just be texting you Star Trek trivia every <laughs> yeah, would week. Would you please? <laughs> All right. Yeah, let's set up a time for that to happen so I can turn my phone. <clears throat> near me so I can be sure and catch all the trivia is what I was going to say. Exactly. Yeah. Well, the first thing that I want to point out about uh, Court Marshall is that uh, Joan Marshall, not spelled the same way as Court Marshall, but Joan Marshall, who plays uh, the prosecuting attorney here, Miss Shaw, she was in the William Castle film Homicidal. Have you heard of this? Have you I ever have, seen it, Ken? I have not. Okay. Homicidal is the precursor to Psycho. So, Psycho, huge hit, awesome movie, yay, Hitchcock. Homicidal was a creepier, weirder, darker movie made by kind of B-movie exploitation king William Castle. I want to say about a year before or so. And Joan Marshall is the star of that movie. And that movie has such a bizarre twist. I don't want to give it away. Uh, But she is an awesome actress. So, I love seeing her in this. And she... You know, in a time when there were not a lot of really strong female roles, well, here's a couple of them. Shaw and then her starring turn in Homicidal. So check that out. Very cool. That actually reminds me it reminds me a little bit of um, Manhunter. Do you know Manhunter? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember that show. Yeah. yeah. Well, no, no, no. I'm sorry. Oh. Not, no, it was, it, was, it was a movie. Oh, you're talking about – oh, yeah, of course. That the, came out uh, before the Silence of the Lambs. Silence of the Lambs. Right. A Michael Mann film, which I loved. Yeah, yeah but, but most people don't know about it because mm-hmm. it was – I mean, I wouldn't say it was low budget. Um, but certainly it was not you know, Jonathan Demme. It was not um, Anthony Hopkins. Right. It was not Jodie Foster. It was people right. you would recognize. Like it wasn't Grissom from CSI. <laughs> right, yeah. And Manhunter. Yeah, and it, and it wasn't bad. But then – Right. Then Silence of the Lambs actually hit as a big movie, and then they did whatever the next one was. And then they actually went back and did Red Dragon, which is what Manhunter was based on. They actually went back and did Red Dragon as its own movie um, with a bigger budget, and that that pretty much just puts Manhunter on the 99-cent shelf. Yeah, that's a shame. Um, So another little bit of trivia here. It looks like we have finally settled on Starfleet as the name of the entity in this episode. Um, So that's good news. And um, this show, it it was written pretty early in the production cycle. And it it was designed to use minimal sets. uh, But it was held off in broadcast order. So to me, like I said, comparing it to the Menagerie, they were actually shot very close to each other. This one was shot before the Menagerie. And I feel like they kind of cut their teeth on this one and then improved the format when they got to the Menagerie. Now, with the Menagerie, you have the awesomeness of revisiting the cage. Um, 
But we, we'll get into our kind of judgment of this episode a little bit later. Uh, but it is worth, if it, it is worth pointing out, though, that this one came first, and they were so close to each other, they held off on this one a little later in the run, so you didn't have two courtroom shows back to back. I got to dig around in the archives a little bit. Oh, cool. And, yeah, and I found some script changes. There are actually a lot of script changes, but I only pulled two that I thought uh, – well, actually three that I, that I thought were kind of interesting. Um, Commodore Stone has this line at the beginning when he's talking to Kirk and uh, he says – this was a line that was cut from the script – we're expected to be as infallible as in the machines we operate. But if machines could break down, then why not men? I like this line a lot, but I think it tips the hand a little too soon in the episode. Um, we'll get into what the episode is about, but I think that that, that would have been too much foreshadowing about yeah. the, the major topics here. Another script note that I found to be pretty entertaining, uh, the deleted version, when they go into court, uh, the deleted version of the script note says, a small tape begins to slowly rotate. And then that was scratched and it was changed to lights blinking. <laughs> and I thought, yes, of course, because somebody looked at the script and they said there are no tape recorders in the 23rd century. It's blinking lights. Well, plus it would have been really weird where if they had the, rec- the tape because back in um, Tomorrow is Yesterday, mm-hmm. they come mm-hmm. across the, the old computer – that that runs tape, right? And both Sulu and and uh, and Kirk talk about, wow, look at this antique. Is I one of these in the museum once? But I can work right. it, you know. <laughs> right? So, yeah. Right. If they had then if then it's like you know three hundred years later they're still using it. That might have yes. So you're right. Yeah. Lights blinking is much better. Blinking so, lights great. though. I mean that's a, a, a distraction. You know that'll work every time for me. It, exactly. <laughs> and then uh, and then finally, um, Cogley, who is Kirk's attorney in this. Um, it, there's a scene where he's going through – he has the computer go through Kirk's uh, decorations and his achievements in Starfleet. And he reemphasizes in this edited line that Kirk is the fourth most decorated man in Starfleet. And he's kind of like, huh? You hear that? You hear that, Attorney Shaw? And um, they cut it out because it was redundant. But I, I thought it was an interesting note because it does place Kirk – kind of in the bigger context. Starfleet is a big operation, but now we kind of understand exactly where Kirk stands. So I thought that was kind of a cool line, uh, mm-hmm. but they, they cut it for time and for redundancy. You know what I find interesting about that? Because um, this is something that I was actually going to bring up with you. I didn't realize you had that as part of the trivia. Um, it is interesting. Not only do, would that have shown, okay, so the fourth, I mean, that's kind of neat. It is actually a point though. It's actually a point of contention between the attorneys, which again, we'll get to that in a second. Um, how many of, of Kirk's accolades they actually have to hear. It's really interesting if you go through because we, we get uh, we get Spock on the stand, we get Bones on the stand, and we get Kirk on the stand. Um, and they go through the accolades and honors for each one. Uh, Spock has a list about as long as a baby's arm. <laughs> right. McCoy yeah. has a list about as long as my arm. And Kirk has a list about as long as... Like if we cut off your arm mm-hmm. and sewed it to my arm, <laughs> right? it would yeah. be about that long. And sorry about, you know, cutting off your arm, but I'm rather attached to mine. Yeah, no, I, I understand. All right. <laughs> 
I have to be honest, my own decorations are rather basic, brushed aluminum, black keys, no stickers or cases or anything. Maybe they were talking about something else. Prologue. The Enterprise puts in an unscheduled stop at Space Station 11. They need repairs after an ion storm caused damage and the death of Lieutenant Commander Benjamin Finney, records officer for the Enterprise. Kirk logs the incident. They hit an ion storm. The storm got bad. The ship went to yellow alert, then red alert. Kirk told Finney to get out of the ion pod in which he was recording the storm before Kirk had to jettison that pod. Finney failed to do so, and that, sadly, was that. In bursts Jamie Finney, Ben's daughter. She says Kirk always hated her dad and must have murdered him. She seems hysterical, though her accusation seems to be backed up with computer records from the Enterprise, indicating that Kirk's telling of the tale is not how things went down. Uh-oh. Kirk's going to be the star of a courtroom drama. Act 1. Held on Space Station 11 pending inquiry, Kirk and Bones go for a drink. Kirk gets the cold shoulder from the patrons of the bar, though. They've apparently heard that he killed Finney. Kirk leaves, and McCoy starts chatting up the lovely Ariel Shaw. Turns out she's an old friend of Kirk's. Kirk, meanwhile, sits with Commodore Stone for his inquiry. Here, Kirk's history with Finney is revealed. They were pals once, when Ben taught Jim at the Academy. Heck, he named his daughter Jamie after James Kirk. Both men ended up serving on the same ship. One day while relieving Finney, Kirk spotted a mistake made by Finney that could have ended with the accidental destruction of the ship. Kirk corrected it and logged it. That got Finney bounced in terms of possible promotion and that divided the two men. Still, years later, he was a member of Kirk's Enterprise crew, treated no better or worse than any other member of the crew, according to Kirk. It was Fenny's turn to do whatever had to be done in the pod, and unfortunate that he died as a result. Kirk maintains that he'd stepped the Enterprise to red alert and called Fenny out of the pod, though the Enterprise computers say that is not the case. At this point, Stone suggests Kirk plead out. He could have a nice big desk with a nice comfy chair, save both himself and Starfleet embarrassment. Hey, man, just say you were tired and we can make this whole thing go away. But Kirk says no dice and demands a full hearing. Act 2. Back at the bar, Kirk catches up with a real Shaw, with whom there are definite sparks in a sexy, sexy way. She wants to talk business, though. She's a lawyer in the judge advocate's office, you see. She advises Kirk to go for a lawyer that won't try to argue the case as Kirk versus the computer. The prosecution will rely on evidence from the Enterprise computer, which she knows because she's arguing for the prosecution. Awkward. She suggests a lawyer for Kirk, one Samuel T. Cogley. He's a book-loving, computer-distrusting, old-fashioned lawyer who'd probably have a grand time drinking with Dr. McCoy. On now to the trial. Shaw calls Spock to the stand. He says he knows Kirk could not have done what he's accused of doing despite the charges and despite the incontrovertible evidence against him. Eventually, though, he has to admit that that's just his opinion. The Enterprise personnel officer is called to the stand, which is Shaw's way of getting the Kirk-Finney split on the record. McCoy is called to the stand. Suddenly, he's an expert on something called space psychology. He figures Finney might have hated Kirk and is forced to concede that Kirk might have hated Finney in return. He doubts it of Kirk, though it is possible. Cogley, meanwhile, has cross-examined no one. He says he's just waiting to get Kirk on the stand. Here, Kirk gets his story on the record. It was Finney's turn to do whatever had to be done in the pod and unfortunate that he died as a result. Kirk maintains that he'd stepped the Enterprise to red alert and called Finney out of the pod, and he'd do it all again because he did nothing wrong. But video from the bridge of the Enterprise tells a different story. It shows the ship going to yellow alert, and, as if a prop maker had put it there just for this episode, it shows Kirk pushing the jettison pod button, one of only three buttons labeled on the captain's chair. Act 3. 
Cogley thinks maybe Kirk should just plead out. Jamie stops by to see Kirk, apologize for being so hysterical during the show's prologue, and suggests that Kirk plead out. Kirk's mom calls and suggests that he plead out. Not really, but you get the idea. Back aboard the Enterprise, meanwhile, Spock is playing chess against the computer, an idea that he got in conversation with Kirk. Bones is incredulous, though Spock says he's beaten the computer four games in a row. This should not be possible. Something is wrong with the Enterprise computers. Spock and Bones rush to tell Cogley, who had been about to give up. Now he's fired up. From the code of this to the declaration of that, justice, he argues, is about human rights, rights that are now being overshadowed by machines. Kirk, he argues, deserves to face the chief witness against him. Cogley would like the court-martial to reconvene on the Enterprise. Act 4. The court-martial does reconvene on the Enterprise, with Cogley quizzing Spock and Kirk. Spock says something is wrong with the Enterprise computers, a fact proven by his beating the machine in chess five times now. The best he should be able to get is a draw. Who could monkey with the ship's computer without leaving a trace? Spock says only he, Kirk, and the ship's records officer could do that, though the Enterprise doesn't have one, since the death of Lieutenant Commander Benjamin Finney, records officer for the Enterprise. Aha! Cogley submits to the court that Finney is not dead, but faked his death, faked the evidence against Kirk, and is in fact hiding on the ship. Everyone who is non-essential is beamed off the Enterprise, and Spock uses a sweet 5.1 surround sound system with a kick and subwoofer to amplify the heartbeats of everyone on board. McCoy uses a very sophisticated 23rd century audio device, let's say a microphone from Radio Shack, to isolate all the heartbeats of the people on the bridge. Once they mask out the transporter chief, there's a lone heartbeat left. It must be Finney. He is hiding in engineering, where everyone goes to hide. See also the enemy within. Finney, by the way, is crazy, making one wonder just how good at space psychology McCoy actually is. Finney monologues. He does blame Kirk, and he'll get him back by destroying the Enterprise. Kirk says that that will end in the death of Finney's daughter, Jamie, who has been brought aboard. This leads to a fight, which leads to a sobbing and beaten Finney telling Kirk how to save the Enterprise from destruction. The charges are dropped. Shaw says a sexy, sexy goodbye to Kirk. The end. I thought we learned that uh, starships don't make detailed records of every moment of action. Oh, uh, bring that up, uh, you, you? you need Telosians to carry off something like that. Well, bear in mind, the Telosians made those excellent recordings when um, the Enterprise was at Space Station 11. Oh, And now yeah. we're back on Space yeah. Station 11, so maybe the Telosians have a deal. But I don't think that's true. Actually, the thing that surprised me was that when you pull up to Space Station 11, it doesn't have a sign that says, now under new management. <laughs> they should have that. Commander yeah. Stone is now the man with the keys to Space Station 11. Uh, it was Commodore uh, uh, Mendez. Excuse me. It was Commodore Mendez back mm-hmm. uh, back for the uh, menagerie or the cage or, you know, the combination of the two. Um, kind of makes me wonder if the Telosians just made up Mendez entirely. Because we had, we had puzzled over, you know, when he was replaced, but maybe he just never was. So one of the other things that I like here is the, the lovable old coot Cogley has got a bunch of books. And I like it when we have books in the future. It, it's kind of a, a sci-fi cliche. You, you show the person who's the iconoclast, who's holding on to the old ways, but they, they still have books. I, I, I kind of like that about this. I'm going to step out of the timeline for one second. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, so they have books in the future, but apparently they have no, uh, I'm guessing they have books, they have hand carts, but they have no locks because Cogley is in Kirk's space. 
with enough he just shows up with yeah. enough law books. He doesn't even show up. No, Kirk shows up, and there's Cogley yeah. with enough law books for a for a small for like a community college um, law library. Right, just, just all just over the place. Out. He it, got him there someplace. Yeah. Maybe he beamed them in in files all over the tables. But uh, yeah, no knock, no key. Just you know, of course I'm in your space. Why not? We're going to be spending a lot of time together, as Cogley says. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Uh, another thing that I like here is that we we have a story centered around the death of a crewman where that has some impact. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, you know, we, we always had the cliche of the red shirt. It doesn't matter. But but this time it does matter. It, well, yeah. Well, yes, except we don't have the death of a crewman. <laughs> well, we, we thought we had. I, well, well certainly we did. Yes. <laughs> but, but it is something that you realize there is a structure in place where this kind of incident has to be investigated. They have to go by uh, some sort of procedure instead of just chalking it up to like, oh, here's another another notch on the warp core. We lost another one, you know? <laughs> right, right. So the, the the story actually, you know, centering around, although we have that thing again um, where it's sort of a made up, you know, there's a girl out there named after James T. Kirk, Maybe maybe she's his goddaughter, or maybe she was back in the day, but we've never heard of her. We're never going to hear of her again, mm-hmm. you know. But th- there's like this, you know. Let me let me take two minutes and give you a bunch of history, and now you'll care, <laughs> and, <laughs> and we'll go ahead and tell the story. So I mean, I get what you're saying. It is it is you know it is it is better to have the uh, the fallen crew members not just be meat at the same time. You know, it's one of those things where you're kind of like, oh, I care about this because they told me to in the first five minutes. Rather than giving you yeah. time to actually build up a relationship with the character and care about them, right? Well, speaking about characters that we care about, uh, shouldn't Ariel Shaw have recused <laughs> herself from being a part of this trial? Hey, let me go back. We care a lot. I like Ariel Shaw. <laughs> I like Ariel Shaw quite a bit for a number of reasons, as you pointed out. She's a smart, uh, strong character. Um, she's also she's also um, I'll say it. She's sexy. Oh, heck yeah. Heck yeah. I, I would agree with that. Totally. I, you know, we've had a, a lot of kind of the, the young yeoman, but this is a tough, smart, mature woman. And yeah. I think she's great. Um, and Star Trek doesn't always have the best record with strong female characters. We get a lot of them, but we also have some misses in there with the hits. Um, but I, I think she's terrific. Yeah, um, but- I just feel like, well... Would this really have happened where she had this relationship with Kirk, whatever the nature of that relationship may have been, but she would still allow herself to be part of the prosecuting team? You know, I mean, here's the weird thing, though. I mean, they they put together a lot of stuff really quickly in this episode, right? Like they have to call the members of the court to mm-hmm. convene. They they don't just have a court martial right there because they don't have enough officers to do that. But she is already on Starbase 11. I mean, she was already there for another reason. They weren't planning on having a court martial when Kirk showed up to Starbase 11. So she's just there to do it. I mean, the one thing to remember is there are only 12 ships like the Enterprise in the Starfleet fleet. Good of them to have actually a name as big as Starfleet when you've only got 12 ships. But there are only 12 <laughs> ships that size. So who knows how many, you know, judges there are or, or uh, excuse me, lawyers there are uh, for Starfleet, especially just, you know, how many there just happen to be hanging out at the Starbase. Because we know there are at least 11 Starbases. How many lawyers are you going to put at each one? Yeah. yeah. Well, maybe they're just crawling with lawyers. Maybe this is a downfall <laughs> of the future. <laughs> In which case, yes, she should have recused herself. Can I say I was really excited 
Ah, I was so excited. Space Command, it turns out, is not just a made-up thing for Miri. It's a made-up thing for other episodes, too. <laughs> Which is kind of neat, right? The members of the court, I mentioned them a minute ago, they include Commander Stone, of course, of Starbase 11. Uh, Mendez, who knows where he is at this point. Uh, Captain Krignovsky. Yeah, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. A Captain. Um, mm-hmm. He's from an unnamed starship. Captain Chandra is from an unnamed starship. And uh, Representative Lindstrom of Space Command, opposed to which he was recently promoted from Missile Command, where he helped repel space invaders. Also, Centipede, Pac-Man, and Donkey Kong. I like, I like, <laughs> I like the 80s video games. No, it was, it was neat to hear Space Command mentioned again, because we've made a lot of fun, and, uh, and we shouldn't have, because it turns out it's a thriving place with at least one representative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah they, you found it. Um, hey, by the way, <laughs> does uh, Chandra ring any bells for you? Uh, should it? Uh, 2001, 2010, oh, yeah, uh, Dr. Yeah, yeah. Chandra was the man who invented the HAL 9000. Yeah. No, I, you know, I, I'm sorry. I was looking for a Star Trek reference, but yes, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Played, yeah, um, I just wanted to pull that name totally out of another place. <laughs> played in a very stupid way in 2010 by Bob Balaban. Not that yes. he's bad, but, you know, you don't look at Bob Balaban and say Chandra or Chandra, whichever. You don't look at him and say, oh, he's from India. You look at him and say, oh, he's from Long Island. <laughs> or you know <laughs> any place but India basically or Pakistan you don't I mean you don't it, Chandra is not a name that you associate with that actor when you see him not usually no yeah. hey um, a, a few other uh, observations here about this episode um, boy I am you know I mentioned earlier how this I, I felt like they were cutting their teeth on the writing with this one mm-hmm. and there are certain things that I just do not like like the narration uh, we we don't have just the captain's log, but we actually have narration from Kirk, and it really doesn't work at all. Um, <laughs> so I'm not surprised that it had never been done before or after this point. Yeah, no, it it's kind of um, it hurts. I mean, it actually mm-hmm. hurts when you're watching it. I mean, there, for some reason, and I don't know why, um, they don't actually bring. Uh, Jamie back to the Enterprise. We have uh, Cogley leaving to go get Jamie. We don't know why he's leaving. We just know that he's got to do something, but it's germane to the case, he says. Um, and then we just have Kirk explain that. Oh, yeah, Cogley went well, to get Jamie. Yeah, my, my understanding um, is that there was a scene written, uh, may have even been shot, that uh, had Jamie back on the Enterprise. Or Jamie on the Enterprise and and seeing her father, but that didn't make the final cut. So uh, that narration kind of served as a bridge uh, for that gap. But either way, it just doesn't work. Um, There are a lot of plot points in this story that I feel like don't work entirely. But I tell you what does work. uh, Whoever was applying the sweat to uh, Ben (laughs) Fenny, uh, great job there. Yeah, and the five o'clock shadow. Which, mm-hmm. yeah, not bad, because he's been hiding down there for about a week, and yet, you know, according to his face, it's only 5 o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> he has not been hiding that long. Or maybe he's been shaving when nobody else was around in engineering. Can we talk about the weird thing that goes on with the Vulcanians? I mean, first of all, oh, I mean, yeah. starting with the fact that we're still calling them Vulcanians at this point, uh, mm-hmm. though we will later call them Vulcans. I don't know when we do that, but at some point we make that switch. Um, during the court-martial... Um, it occurs to me, Vulcanians trade just a whole lot on their reputation. And I'll put it to you this way. Um, let's say you and I meet for the first time ever, 
Okay. Okay. How trusting of me would you be if the very first thing I said to you when I met you for the very first time is, I never lie. And you know that's true because I told you so. And you know that that is true because if you remember the start of this conversation, I never lie. So you know I'm not fooling. <laughs> right? Yeah. Spock will sit in court and say, look, babe, I'm half Vulcanian, which means I'm 100% telling the truth. So Kurt could not have done what you said because, hello, I'm half Vulcanian and I said so. And I got to give props to Shaw because she may well be the first person in Starfleet and the Federation in, you know, uh, that Space Command has ever even fathomed who says, OK, you mean in your opinion <laughs> to which Spock <laughs> folds like a cheap tent. He's like, ah, my Achilles heel. Yes. OK, it is, in fact, just my opinion. But seriously, I am Vulcanian. So, you know, or part Vulcanian. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Where where is your logic now, Spock? Nah. Um, <laughs> exactly. Uh w- one other thing that I I do want to point out is that uh you know, in last week's episode I pointed out how I loved the the picture quality in Tomorrow's Yesterday. I thought the effects were great, the restoration was great. There's it, it a lot going on there that was eye candy. And this one is not so good, and I'm trying to figure out why that is. Um, it, it kind of looks like it was a different crew almost, even though it wasn't. Um, but the, the lighting seems uh, troubled, shall we say. Um, shots look overexposed. Uh, it, it, there's just a, a lot going on here that's kind of uh, hard to grasp uh so that may have affected in some ways my feelings about the episode here but i it was a little bit of a a large disappointment coming off of tomorrow's yesterday the one thing i will say is it was neat to see two um what are they called are they called galaxy class ships that's what's stuck in my head is that what they are uh, this is a constitution class ship, ah, the enterprise constitution or constellation Constitution. Wow, I'm so bad at this. I apologize. It was neat to see two of them, you know, around the planet. In one of the in mm-hmm. one of the in one of the shots, one of the establishing shots. I can't remember if it was coming back from a commercial break or just when they're establishing that he's back on Starbase Eleven. Uh, you actually see two uh, two ships, um, and you know, it's just part of the fleet. It's part of that twelve ship fleet that we've heard about, which was kind of neat. It makes the universe seem a bit bigger than it has seemed in uh, in episodes past. Oh, and uh, you had a note here that we have, uh, first of all, chalk one up for another ripped shirt, and then we've got a wrench in engineering. You're so lying. That was your note. Why are you making me the guy who like points out the ripped shirts? What's up with that? Yes, there was a ripped I, shirt. I, hey, I'll take that note if you want me to. That's fine. Yeah, it was kind of crazy. I, I, I guess it was my, my note. Maybe I looked at it and I thought, wow, that's so weird. Did I even write that? I guess I did write that. Rip shirt and wrench. Wow. But I'm going to blame Ken anyway. Yeah, the wrench, the wrench was incongruous. Engineering is clean as a whistle. Except for this one wrench, which, which will come in handy if you want to try to bash somebody's skull in. The arguments have been made. Now it's time for the judges in this case to weigh the evidence before them. So I mentioned early on that this episode of Court Martial, it, it is a court show. And, and that's great 
Star Trek is flexible. It can lend itself to that. But we have the more interesting addition here of technology on trial. So it's not just the ship computer itself, but, you know, the old school emotional approach of Kirk's attorney. And I really feel like, to me, that's the best thing about this episode is that the court procedure Oh, man, it, I, I use this term a lot before, but the MacGuffin, you know, you, you have the MacGuffin of the ion pod of the story with Ben Finney. And, and honestly, I feel like I, I was kind of tuning a lot of that out. Um, it, it is kind of strange and and maybe a bad production choice. So you have this big button on the captain's chair labeled jettison pod. All of that stuff aside, what I really enjoyed here was just the the plea that Cogley makes for humanity and the contrast of the human on trial versus the computer. See, that kind of feels to me like a little bit of an oversimplification, though. I didn't feel exactly like it was technology on trial. Well, let me let me back up a little bit. What is it that you like so much about Cogley? Because I can't, I can't quite put my finger on it. I want to like Cogley more than I do. I like the idea of Cogley, but it feels like an idea is about all we got for Cogley. He's, yeah, he's cantankerous. Ah, he likes books. Ah, you can have your computer. You know what I mean? <laughs> it never even crosses his mind that somebody might have tampered with the computer. <laughs> Here's this guy who's completely distrustful of computers, but once he is presented with computer evidence, he turns to Kirk and says, you might want to think about cutting a deal. It doesn't even yeah. cross his mind that, I mean, the, the evidence, as I said in the, uh, in the recap, is incontrovertible as far as almost anyone is concerned when it comes to the computer thing. And so I'm trying to figure out what it is exactly about Cogley that you like so much, unless it's just, you know, that he's such an anachronism, that he is the guy who has books. There's something about his suit that seems kind of old fashioned. It's still futuristic. It's still not something that, you know, Atticus Finch or any, you know, lawyer <laughs> earlier than that would have worn. But um, I mean, is it the anachronism? What is it about him that you dig so much? Well, I think that is part of it. I, I, I do like him for that. He, he's an interesting kind of um, rough around the edges character for Star Trek. We don't see a lot of that in Star Trek. Um, but th there's something about him, uh, particularly in his moment where he, he makes that plea about humanity. I, I think he he's sort of playing the role here that McCoy would play in any other place. You know, we usually turn to McCoy when there's something to be said about, well, we'll forget all the technology, forget all this stuff. What is the human cost of what we're doing? And Cogley is the guy who kind of puts the button on that. And now I agree that he may be arguably uh, effective or ineffective here as an attorney. And it does take Spock and Kirk to figure <laughs> out what's actually going on. Right. Um, but to me, Cogley serves as the heart here of the show. Hmm. It's interesting. Actually, you say you wonder if um, if Shaw sort of should have recused herself. It should be noted that Shaw was the one who suggested Cogley and had Spock not found out. And <laughs> <laughs> Spock not found out that there was something wrong with the computer. I mean, uh, Cogley was said to be one of the most useless lawyers ever. <laughs> <laughs> no no cross-examination yeah. you know he puts kirk on the stand which you will often hear on you know 
courtroom dramas and sometimes on TV that, no, 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 you don't want to put the defendant on the stand because that's going to open him up to having to answer questions about himself, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's it's maybe maybe um, maybe Shaw thought she knew what she was doing <laughs> by putting the guy who just didn't trust computers, but you know, trusted them enough not to ask questions about them. I'm I'm just I'm making stuff up. That's not one <laughs> of the topics. I guess it's I can't tell where Cogley's argument for humanity comes from, except from a gosh darn gee whiz, wouldn't we rather be human kind of thing. I mean, evidence is supposed to be evidence. Granted, this evidence was tampered with, but then what's our ultimate answer? That evidence is not trustworthy? You need to go with your gut? If you know a guy, then you know a guy. And if you know that guy couldn't have killed anybody, then by golly, that guy couldn't have killed anybody. Right? Well, <laughs> right? This I, is the I, part. I don't think it's quite that. I mean, because here's the thing. Um, Cogley is... Cogley is making the argument not just that, okay, you should take Kirk for his word because Kirk is such a great guy. Mm-hmm. I think for me, Cogley is making the argument, look, we are talking about a human being. We're talking about his career, his life, his reputation, and we owe it to him as a human being to do the best job that we possibly can to exhaust every possibility that we can to make absolutely certain that he is innocent or guilty. So to me, I think that's the important thing here. And, and, and this is why the, this thing that jumped out at me was uh, this show made me think about the modern justice system and, and especially the death penalty again. You know, I, I had talked about this in, in previous episodes, even if they weren't necessarily about the death penalty. The point here is that we can't be cavalier with evidence. And we can't treat people who are on trial as the pieces on a chessboard. So Cogley is making a plea for human dignity and and the sanctity of the lives of the people who who are the subjects here, as opposed to just holding the court procedural above everything else. See, I would argue, and then you know, what I would argue is that Cogley only finds the stones to do that. Um, once he knows that there's something wrong with the computer. He only makes his argument for humanity, and he's got to be able to face his accuser only when he knows that his accuser is mistaken. It doesn't even occur to him you know, to question the validity of the computer evidence until he is presented with evidence himself that the computer evidence is wrong. Now, I will say, I do love the fact that you came to thoughts on the death penalty on this, because while this episode is not about the death penalty specifically, uh, it did make me think about it too. And... I'm kind of a rare bird among most of the people that I know or most of the people that I hang out with. I sit on the fence, fence, excuse me, as far as um, the death penalty goes. I'm still not sure how I feel about it today. But to assume any sort of infallibility in our justice system, especially when it comes to something as permanent as killing someone in the name of justice, um, I'm not sure. I, I mean, <laughs> I'm not sure that that was the point of this episode, but it was a a stopping point that I arrived at, same as you. Um, At the same time, this episode seems to me to be kind of like a warning sign, not so much about, you know, technology versus men, but about not losing our humanity. I mean, you said earlier, Cogley's making a plea for human dignity um, Mm -hmm. and the sanctity of life as opposed to, you know, the uh, the machine, whether that machine is, you know, a a physical machine that has, you know, gears and, and cogs for Cogley. Or, uh, or if you're just talking about a system. I agree 
with that with that sort of take on it. But it also seems to be about not. It, 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 this is a totally muddled message if there is a message here. This seems to be about not taking anything at face value or maybe warning people to look beyond what seems to be the obvious answer. If that's the message, though, like I say, it's muddled because here's video, video. Here's video of Kirk doing something. But who are you going to believe, asks Spock, me or your lying eyes? I mean, even Mr. Logic is willing to say, you can't tamper with computers and we know that these computers weren't tampered with and yet this whole thing is wrong. I mean, it's, it, it, there ends up being absolutely no certainty in this episode, except among Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. Even their belief in the technology on which they rely is shaken. So all you've really got is humanity, unless that human is Finney, because he's completely untrustworthy, or, you know, unless you're talking about anybody who's not as cool as Kirk. That, by the way, is my new catchphrase. <laughs> I'm as cool as Kirk. I think that's, that should be our t-shirt. People have asked if we're going to have mission log t-shirts. No. I'm cool as Kirk. That should be, that should be our T-shirt. <laughs> I'm fairly certain. Well, I, it, it just it, it, it gets too muddled to say <sighs> – I mean it's neat because we're humans to say, you know, yay humanity. And, <laughs> and you would hope that if you were innocent, even if all signs pointed to your guilt, that, that the whole system would stand up for you and go, oh, but look at him. You know he's innocent. I mean there have been plenty of people – there have been plenty of people who are held in great esteem who it turns out have embezzled, who it turns out have killed people, who it turns out have done illegal things. The only thing Kirk has going for him in this episode is the fact that he's Kirk and that it turns out he was innocent. But there's no reason that we should have thought he was. There's no reason that Spock should have thought he was. Spock being the logical thing that Spock is should have looked at the computer if he had the belief in the technology that he seems to have should have looked at the computer record and gone, I never would have thought Kirk would have done it. Looks like I'm in command. <laughs> but we saw how that turned out in Galileo 7. Yeah, it's true. Although um, the next week they handed the keys to the Enterprise to him and he didn't blow the whole thing up. So maybe he learned a lot in Galileo 7. <laughs> right. But, uh, but here's the thing. I, I don't think that you and I are that far off from – from what we're seeing in this episode. I, I understand where you're coming from that, you know, we are sort of holding Kirk up to this uh, uh, better, maybe, uh, uh, ideal. And we're, we're saying that, well, because he is who he is, mm -hmm. then we're going to trust what he says. Star Trek very often has a lot to do with loyalty. And we saw this kind of loyalty play out as well in the menagerie. Right. Um, but here are Kirk's friends, Kirk's co-workers who are coming to his defense because they know, even if it's just a, a gut feeling, they know that he wouldn't do something careless and stupid that would endanger somebody on his crew. What I'm saying is that it isn't necessarily solely about their trust in technology or not. And this is where I go back to this thing of why I thought about current day justice and the death penalty and all of this stuff. I, and I'm thinking about the death penalty only because it is the ultimate expression of how we do justice or maybe don't do justice in this country. Mm -hmm. um, but to me, this is saying that regardless of technology, regardless of the tools that we have available to us, we have to use logic and we have to make sure that we are being thorough and we are being respectful of the people who are on trial, that, that we cannot be cavalier in any way and just say, well, 
there's the evidence. We're done. Even though everybody was willing to do that. I mean, I, I guess I guess the problem that I have is evidence. I guess the problem that I have is what do we mean when we say evidence? I don't understand DNA evidence. I don't. I don't get it. Mm-hmm. I understand it in theory. I understand what I hear on the news. I understand what we see on CSI, which I assume means I really don't understand DNA evidence. <laughs> but I mean, it, there's DNA evidence, and that means nothing to me. That's that's like the myth of fingerprints. You know, <laughs> that's like I mean, that's mm-hmm. like that that doesn't really exist as far as my personal understanding. And yet, we all assume that it's actually accurate. And I assume when they say, "Well, they found you know DNA evidence that links this person to this," that we're actually talking about something there. And this episode of Star Trek, DNA evidence wouldn't have been enough because a visual record wasn't enough because the knowledge that the evidence couldn't be tampered with wasn't enough. And that's because it turns out the evidence could, in fact, be tampered with. I'm bothered that it takes them so long to get to the idea that, you know, the evidence could be tampered with. But I'm also, I mean, I, I, it just ah, maybe 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 this is not a message episode. And I know we're jumping, but maybe this is not a message episode. That's how I'm able to enjoy this, because if I try to say, OK, well, what can we learn from this episode? Should I stop now and we'll let the computer say something and then we come back to the part where we say, what can we learn from this episode? <laughs> There's something here that I find very interesting that, again, even if it's not the message, think about all of Star Trek that we've done up until now. We're on our 20th episode mm-hmm. only. Mm-hmm. And look at how many times we've explored this idea of man and technology. Um, the idea here that uh, I, I love that we are setting this show in the future with amazing technology, things that bring us the ability to provide for each other that we cannot even conceive of now. And yet throughout Star Trek, we see all these places where we also don't necessarily trust the technology or the technology is too advanced. So we have to take a step back from it. So I think that's all really interesting stuff that gets explored here again, maybe not as well as other episodes. I mean, I, I think this episode has a lot of problems, but I think that's one of the things that, that we're tackling here. And another angle that we're going at a little bit uh, in the way that we did with uh, Conscience of the King is revenge versus justice. A little bit. So I, I think there's interesting stuff to mine here, um, but it's not as uh, it's not as strong as in other episodes. And I just think that the the, the, the writing and and other production issues kind of hurt this episode. See what it reminds me of is Minority Report, but we have to go the other way on it, right? Did you uh, for people who haven't seen mm-hmm. Minority Report or who haven't seen it in a while? Um, Basically, what they find out is that their system of justice is fallible. They had been, in the movie Minority Report, uh, been operating under the assumption that their system of justice was infallible. And it turns out you can trick it. And once they find out they can trick it, then everything that they've ever done before gets called into question. Every case that they've prosecuted under this system of justice gets called into question. And I guess that's kind of the problem that I have here. There's no such thing as evidence. There's no such thing as evidence in this episode. That's why I kind of want to get off the whole idea of is there a message here? Because, I mean, we're human, so we're going to say yay humanity. But you can't say yay humanity to the negation of evidence if you're talking about courts. I, it just ah, – I get stuck. I get stuck in this episode. Well, the biggest piece of evidence in this episode, it turns out, is not um, 
is not the computer. It is not the record of what happened on the ship. The biggest piece of evidence here is Ben Fenny. Right. Um, and, you know, in any court procedural show, you get to a point where we think we've got all the information. We think we've got all the evidence. And the, the last minute, oh, wait, here's the thing that we were missing. So it, even if this is written in a clunky way, we still get to that point. Everything that had been happening up until that point was just incomplete. But I still maintain that they did the right thing by holding back and and fighting through to the point where they do have the complete picture. So they're not making um, they're not making the bad decision by just writing off Kirk. With messages and morals kicked around. It's time to enter the final verdict on court-martial into the mission log. Well, I think at this point you can sort of tell (laughs) at least what John's position uh, on this show is. But this is the part of the episode where we figure out what the messages, morals, and meanings are, or really we figured it out or tried to figure it out for the last few minutes. Now we're going to try to sum up what they are and to try to figure out whether this episode stands the test of time. Uh, Let's start with the production side of it. Um, I think you have tipped your hand several times now, but for the record, and and please speak clearly so the computer can record you with its flashing lights and its way in the thing. Um, Does this episode hold up production-wise? No. Case closed. (laughs) <laughs> I think the writing is really strained. Um, I think the look of this episode is not that great. Yeah, we get some flashy new dress, uniform, costumes, things like that. Um, but it, it really I, – I don't like uh, the introduction of uh, Jamie, Finney's daughter. Um, I think all the scenes with Finney are, are just poorly played. Um, I don't buy it. And uh, I do like Cogley. I do like Stone a lot, uh, Commodore Stone. I really, really like Shaw. Uh, So there are some great moments here. There are great characters and there are ideas to be explored here. Um, But I feel like all of this is the victim of an unpolished script. Hmm. I just felt like it was a bit long. Which may sound crazy because it's a 50-minute show and it's a 50-minute show and every week it's a 50-minute show. But it's long. Had this either – had there – I don't know. I mean do you want to build up the relationship between Ben and Kirk more? I mean maybe you want to actually see them sort of like we did with um, with with uh, Gary in uh, Where No Man Has Gone Before. Where No Man Has Gone Before. We establish a relationship with them and then we see the thing happen. If maybe we had established the relationship with Finney – and Kirk, and then seeing this happen, that might have cut the courtroom time down a little bit, and that might have actually made the episode a bit more palatable. When Kirk tells the same story the third time, and when it takes such an incredibly long time, or at least it feels like a long time to get through the courtroom part, um, that to me is where this suffers. And of course, as you mentioned, the voiceover at the end. I don't think I disliked it as much as you did, because I just get I get the feeling that you really don't like this episode, and I'm just really kind of okay with this episode. I mean, you know, I go back to uh, other episode <laughs> that we watched a while ago, and it's leagues beyond that. So, um, eh, it's okay. It's okay if you're a fan. It's okay if you're introducing somebody to Star Trek. Do not start with this episode. 
Start Not with okay. start with almost any other episode. All right. So uh, messages, morals, meanings, that whole thing. Is there a message here? There's not a message, but I, I think that um, we're still here at play between humanity versus machines and how much trust we put into machines. And uh, if that gets out of hand, how do we make sure that we're doing right by humanity first mm-hmm. rather than relying simply on a computer? So I, it's, that's all well and good. Uh, I, I think it's important. Um, but I, I don't think it is a beat you over the head thing. Like I said, I, I keep coming back to this whole thing about the justice system and just thinking that what is important is that we are thorough and respectful for whoever might be sitting in that chair, who, who, whomever might be the accused, um, and, and that we don't just sort of assume that we know the answer because we think the answer is so obvious. Um, that if we are going to treat other humans with respect, then we need to do so. Hmm. That's interesting. See, the message that I picked up was a little bit different. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't see it so much as a as a man versus technology kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It feels like though there is a message here that we need to guard against losing our humanity as technology advances. And and that that again can be like, hey, I'm going to upload myself into a robot, or you know, it could be, <laughs> or it could be, you know, something about. I mean, we have these procedures. We have, I mean, uh, the court system is insanely large. You know, the justice system is insanely large, and and you could say that this has nothing to do with technology and has everything to do with just as I mean, as you pointed out, as making sure that you know the the human part um, is um, is respected. And and is and the scene after. That's really hard to do when you're talking about justice, though. Everybody was a baby at one point. Somebody changed everybody's diapers. You know, let's hope. And so, I mean, there there has to be a certain coldness. It seems to me, or a certain callousness, without being mean to the justice system. Ah, it's it's this, this is a really this is a really tough episode. I mean, when you try to like when you try to pull out what the meanings, morals, messages, whether or not they hold up. When you try to pull all that out, or at least when I try to pull all that out, it's tough. This is a tough episode. I will say one thing that we missed in, in all of the discussion. Um, I think you and I forget because we just watched it, and this is audio. I know that there are people who don't actually watch every episode again the way we do. They assume, well, I've seen the episode, so I know. Um, there's a there's a real um, multicultural thing going on in this episode. This is sort of like yeah. you know everything that we've talked about that are just throwaway lines. They don't. They don't mention you know that Doctor Chandra is you know, oh, and you hail from either India or a colony that was founded by India or you you know your people. I mean, they, they don't talk about that. But I mean, he's an Indian dude, unlike Bob Balaban in two thousand ten. It's actually have an Indian dude playing an Indian dude, and uh, and um, Commander oh, whose name I have forgotten that you're a fan of Commodore Stone. Commodore yeah. Stone, thank you very much. Is a black guy which I don't think yeah. we've mentioned. And there's no reason to mention it except you set the Wayback Machine for 1967. There's a black guy in charge of a space station where hundreds, if not thousands of people are doing their business and you know doing their stuff. And he's actually in charge of justice over Kirk, uh, which was a much more um, uncommon thing in 67. Yeah. yeah, so that's kind of, I mean, we, we're still getting, even if you've got a muddled episode, you're still getting a neat, you know, sort of presentation of, wow, we're heading to some awesome places. Sure, occasionally an innocent man might be almost convicted of something he didn't do, but 
Hey, look, <laughs> it's, it's a multicultural, not even a world anymore. It's a multicultural galaxy. Uh, come play. <laughs> well, so in that respect, does the message hold up? Does that message hold up? I mean, the multicultural thing's neat. I mean, sure, you like seeing that. And you love seeing, I, well, I do anyway. I mean, I guess there are people who don't. No letters. <laughs> I guess there are people who don't. Um, I mean, that's kind of neat to see. And, you know, the defending your humanity or hoping for humanity and what could certainly become an inhuman system. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I guess that is a, that's a, that's an important uh, it's an important message, even if it's not a and the moral of the story is, but more just sort of a, you know, warning to the future. Don't don't lose the don't lose the people part of people. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, I, I'll I'll take that and I'll go back to the whole kind of courtroom thing. You know, we will always have this problem where the technology will catch up and that will exceed our our understanding. You know, like like you said, DNA. You know, you don't fully understand DNA, but you know that it's a thing, and you know that it's important, and you know that at least kind of conceptually what that means. Uh, there will be another thing that comes along and there mm -hmm. will be multiple other things that come along um, that affect how we then judge and treat other people. And what we have to do in the meantime is make very certain that we are treating people as humans and not as, uh, well, I'll say it again, pieces on a chessboard, you know, within a system, within a game. Um, so I think that part of it does hold up and will continue to hold up. That's so interesting. We actually came across an episode that you thought the production didn't hold up, but the message does. Hey, look at that. It's yeah. first time for everything. <laughs> there is indeed. <laughs> Speaking of which, remember that time that there were archons? Boy, do I. And then when there weren't archons? Oh, I was so bummed. <laughs> well, there is a first time for everything. That would be the coming of the Archons. And good news, there is a second time for everything. Join us next week for Return of the Archons. Some of the music for the mission log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com and from the album Messages by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. I hereby declare all computers associated with this episode, innocent, and blameless, and, kind of sexy. And transmission. Now leaving Nerdist.com.